Hello, friends. Woo, more sorted SF. I promised myself and y'all that I'd be more consistent, so here we are. Am I three days late? Yes, but whatever. Today's Thursday, June 2nd. I'm going to post this tomorrow on Friday, and I think going forward, Fridays will be the new episode dates. I feel like I've actually been doing things on my weekends instead of staying home and like doing nothing and being sad, which, you know, double-edged sword. I really liked my productive stage, but I'm also really happy in my like have friends and see people (laughs) stage of my life right now. So I think it's probably for the best that I continue to be semi-social so that I don't get swallowed into a lonely depression hole again. Cool. So you heard it here first. Fridays are our new episode dates. Um, so yeah, it's June 2nd. Happy Pride Month. Serendipitously, I have things to sit like what I'm going to talk about today are like gay things that have happened in San Francisco's history. So yeah, in honor of Pride Month, I'm really excited to share kind of these stories with you and it should be good. Um, yeah, obviously SF has a deeply rooted history in championing for LGBTQ LGBTQ plus rights and equality. So yeah, you're going to learn some things, kids. Uh, today's episode is a little different, kind of, I guess. It's really just the story of my weekend. Um, so sorry if you find that super self-serving and boring, but I thought it was fun. I had a great time um, and I'm Like the theme of the weekend was going to historic spots, historic bars. Let's be clear. It was a historic bar crawl. Um, And yeah, that's what we set out to do. And that's what we did. Would have loved to see more spots, but your girl doesn't know the meaning of pacing oneself. So only hit a couple before it was time to go home. Uh, But that's fine. Next time. I just, oh, darn, I have to go out again. Hmm. Uh, So let's get into it. Let's learn about some fucking boozy and fun historic businesses in the city. My sources for this episode include the Phoenix Hotel website, hoodline.com, Wikipedia, EaterSF, specsbarsf.com, SFGate, and a blog called Melinda Lowe. So the gang and I started our day at the Phoenix Hotel for a day party which uh, like a bunch of DJs are playing. Um, we took the 38 Geary down and it took us like four blocks away. You just get off in Van Ness and walk a couple blocks. It was s- such an economical way to travel. Um, when my uncle passed, he had like 17 clipper cards and like some of them still have money on it. And so like, I know I'm not supposed to be using a clipper card at the senior discount rate. Cause obviously my uncle was a senior, uh, but whatever. Thanks, Uncle Bud, for supporting this trip. Ooh, the irony is that he didn't drink. Well, thanks, Uncle Bud, for supporting this booze-filled weekend. Okay, so we started at the Phoenix Hotel. We walk up to, like, the line to get in. We immediately see someone smoking out of a glass pipe. Uh, Friendly guy. Uh, But so we go in. We buy our $50 cocktails. But it's, like, really cute inside. So some backstory. The Phoenix Hotel is a hotel formerly known as the Caravan Lodge. It was founded in 1960 as like a Palm Springs-style retreat, attracting folks like Neil Young, which makes sense because it really gave like mid-century modern like Ace Hotel vibes. 
1987, a 26-year-old Chip Conley, who I guess at this point is like a huge real estate person, like I don't I don't really know too much about him, but I said like the name Chip and like people I was with were like, oh, Chip Conley. So I guess he's a thing in real estate or like hotel management real estate. I don't know. So Chip Conley bought the place in 86. Um, and like at the time, the Caravan Hotel or Caravan Lodge when he bought it was like a pay by the hour hotel. So if you, know, you got my drift and his first reaction was like, this is a great place to throw a party. So between the time it opened in 1960 and when Chip bought the place in 86, the hotel had grown really seedy and sketchy. Like I said, it was paid by the hour in the tenderloin. So when Chip stepped in, he changed the name to Phoenix Hotel to signify rebirth. So from the start, like Chip's whole, um, I forget that word, ethos, maybe, I don't know, uh, was that he wanted to have a spot to throw a good party and live the rock and roll lifestyle. So his target market, he knew straight from the start, was bands playing shows in SF. And so who's in charge of the bands? That's the tour managers. So he just like did all his marketing to tour managers um, to make sure that they knew that like, hey, do you know how close this is to the venue your band's playing? Like we know you have to get them to their gig on time. Like you should stay here. And so if you think about the location, it's on Eddie couple blocks up from Bill Graham like it's so central in like downtown the downtown like area super close to the Regency Ballroom like a couple blocks from Bill Graham um, and like half a dozen other venues around there so it's super solid location for a band on tour to stay um, and then apparently in 1986 there were just 100 tour managers working with rock bands nationwide and this is what Chip said so like I don't know how you get that data but to entice these like stressed managers to book rooms with the Phoenix, he launched a promotion that any tour manager that booked at least five rooms for a two night stay received a free massage in the on site massage treatment room. Word got around in just a few months, and tour managers of people like David Bowie, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Pearl Jam, Nirvana all started cashing in on the free massages. And, like, another huge thing that Chip offered was free tour bus parking because, like, <laughs> where are you going to park your bus? Um, so believe it or not, you know, I just listed some, like, crazy fucking rock bands. Uh, Chip says not a single room at the Phoenix Hotel has ever been trashed. And he attributes that to his philosophy of treating the guests like friends that you're inviting to stay at your house. It was, like, designed for partiers. So, like, bands didn't have to trash their room. They got to party in the entire hotel kind of thing. Like they loved the ability to hang out in the courtyard with a pool. And so like all their groupies and shit could like mingle together because that's like what it was built for. So like the room didn't have to be trashed. Like you weren't even in your room until it was time to sleep. Um, yeah. So another thing that he says is no one's ever OD'd there which I find incredibly hard to believe. Outside, leaning up against the Phoenix Hotel, a thousand percent. There's no way no one has it. But apparently there's been no OD in the actual hotel. Uh, but like that being said, it was still like 
It was still a rock hotel. And I guess Courtney Love could often be found skinny dipping in the pool. It's not a big pool. Um, but one time, one time a band threw a potted plant in the pool. And it was so crazy. Uh, and another time a band drummer threw a bike into the pool and jumped in after it. Like, super fucking tame. Um, but, yeah, the pool is one of two swimming pools in the U.S. that is considered a historic landmark. So, like, nothing can ever happen to that pool. The only other pool is at the Hollywood Roosevelt in L.A. And so, Willie Brown, when he was mayor, he designated the Phoenix Hotel pool as the landmark. Um, so, kind of a, I don't know, fun and morbid thing is that when Kurt Cobain's body was found, like, he had a suicide note or, like, alleged suicide note. Um, but he had a note from like an additional note in his pocket written by Courtney on Phoenix hotel stationery. So like, I don't know, this place is legit. It's seen some stuff. Um, so yeah, we like danced. There was a DJ, there were a couple of DJs and it was so much fun and it was, it was just great. It felt super, like, inclusive and safe, and just everyone was there for a good time. It was cool. And the drinks were, like, I mean, they were $15, but they were fine. They were, like, what you expect for a $15 drink in San Francisco. So strong, but not too strong, and not worth your money, but also, like, eh, I'm not mad at the $15 price because that's the price point. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. So... After the Phoenix, which I highly do recommend going to one of their day parties, they happen, they're called like Summer Sundays or something, uh, we went across the street. Actually, I think, what did we do? We wandered a bit around the TL because we wanted food and we stumbled upon this like Chinese, not a Chinese New Year, but like a dragon dancing thing where some kids, they like blocked off a street. We asked the like employee just like why is the street blocked up and he was like I don't know there's some kids dragon dancing and so it was like a cool thing they were giving out free pizza um watch some kids practice their dragon dancing it was really cool um there's some crazy street art street signs stickers there's just like a lot of fun shit around the TL that like, you know, obviously I don't spend too much time in the TL, but I might have to now, like at least during the day, because there's so much to see. There's so many good, like, I don't know. It's a cool part of the city. Uh, but again, also the whole time we were like, we should walk on the opposite side of the street or like which group of druggies do we want to work, like walk through? Um, or should we just like walk in the street next to traffic? because we don't want to walk through either groups of people on either sides of the street. So that's kind of just like my friends and I were talking about, you know, living in the TL. It'd be cool for like a second until you like realize that you can never let your guard down. You, like you can't walk around with headphones. You can't like enjoy your walk. You are like point A to point B. You're not taking any leisurely strolls. Uh, I mean, you could. I guess this is from the perspective of physically weak women. Um, yeah. Anyway, we did our thing. 
watched the kids do dragon dancing, got pizza, and then we like were waiting for Emperor Norton's Booze Land to open up. So at four, I think it was when they opened, maybe three, I don't know. We walked down to Emperor Norton's Booze Land. Uh, Emperor Norton was an Englishman whose name was actually Joshua Abraham Norton. Obviously, he has a full name. Um, in 1859, while he was living in San Francisco, he proclaimed himself Norton I, Emperor of the United States. And then in 19 or in 1863, after Napoleon III invaded Mexico, he took on the secondary title of Protector of Mexico. Guy was a total kook, total fucking kook. I'm going to do a full episode on Emperor Norton down the line because, like, he's earned his whole his own episode. He's an absolute nutter. But t- today's not about him. Today's about the bar named after him. We made our way over to Emperor Norton's Boozland. Um, and the bar was actually, like, completely deadsies except for, like, one guy. Um, we got mules, talked to the bartender, learned that it didn't become Emperor Norton's until like kind of semi-recently. And before that, it was the Deco Lounge, which was a gay bar. They had occasional DJ parties, amateur strip nights, drag nights, cheap drinks, and like a sketchy downstairs where people smoked and like, you know, sussed it up sometimes. Uh, Now it's not so much a gay bar, but still fun. Um... It had this like amazing historic photo of a building on fire and it might have been the bar, like the building that the bar was in. I'm not really sure. I don't remember what the bartender said because like, uh, getting, getting toasty, but it's a sick photo. I'm going to post it on the Instagram. There's like a shell gas station and it had like an adorable shell shaped sign. Really loved it. So after Amber Norton's, we actually ended up at another gay bar. This one was actually still a gay bar in the TL called Aunt Charlie's. And it looked so unassuming and honestly like kind of scary because like I don't – I can't go toe-to-toe with anyone in the Tenderloin. Like I don't – you know, I don't mean to judge books by their covers, but I don't – what am I doing in the TL? Like that's not for me. But like we looked online – and the photos looked cool, so we knew, like, we just had to make it in the door and it would be fine. And it really was. It was such a lovely bar. We were the only gals there. Everyone else were, like, dudes on dates. And the bartender was so sweet, and we felt so, like, not out of place. And, like, three cocktails were $17. So, like, that was sick. Um, the bar is, like, lit in, like, an ambient pink light. It was so cozy and so lovely. Highly recommend. Um, But in looking up the history of Aunt Charlie's, I learned that the Tenderloin was actually the hub of the, like, LGBTQ scene, especially the transgender scene. And Aunt Charlie's, which is originally called the Queen Mary, is the only gay bar on the block that left. Like, there used the block used to be filled with gay bars, and this is the only surviving one. The only one left in the entire Tenderloin, actually. Um, In the gangway was the city's oldest queer bar, closed in 2018. So Aunt Charlie's is the last one standing. So let's keep it alive for posterity's sake and the fact that it's a sick bar and it deserves to be open. Let's all go to Aunt Charlie's. Drinks on me because I can actually afford it. Um, Hit me up, let's go. So the block of Turk Street between Taylor and Jones, which is where this was, once had a number 
of LGBTQ plus establishments. Um, and, you know, it holds a poignant place in the history of the movement and in particular, like I said, trans history. So there was this place that used to be across the street called Compton's Cafeteria. And it was actually the location of a 1966 uprising by transgender women against police harassment that essentially launched the modern LGBTQ rights movement. Um, Compton Cafeteria was a chain of cafeterias owned by Jean Compton in San Francisco from the 40s to the 70s. This location on Taylor Street across from Aunt Charlie's was a popular meeting place for transgender people, especially trans women, to congregate publicly in the city. Compton's was one of the few places they could meet, as many of the trans women were unwelcome in the gay bars due to transphobia, which is like, come on, guys. I mean, no place should be transphobic, but if you're being othered for being gay, like, they already experience, like, mm. before the riot, the cafeteria was open all night, so trans people and drag queens could meet up after a long night of hustling, which I guess is a code word for sex work. Uh, Compton's management and staff, in an effort to deter drag queens and trans women, because they're assholes, frequently called the police when they were present, causing them to be harassed and arrested for a crime called female impersonation. Police would also come into Compton's without being called because they knew that there were likely people present that they could harass and then arrest. Serve and protect, baby. Um, police could arrest the drag queens and trans women for wearing articles of women's clothing or makeup. And because cross-dressing was illegal at the time, police could use the presence of transgender people in a bar as a pretext for making a raid on the entire establishment and shutting it down. So before the riot at Compton's, there were often physical fights between customers that occurred from like 2 to 3 a.m., which is another reason like the police could raid and close the spot. And so as we know, the 1960s were a turning point for a sexual liberation. And even though San Francisco was definitely a leader in those movements and ahead of its times, believe it or not, all right, believe it or not, many police officers resisted these movements and the increasing visibility of these groups. I know, so crazy, so hard to believe. So the cops continued to harass and abuse transgender people, which like still are. Haven't grown that much. This simultaneously simultaneous rise in support for transgender rights on one side met with the unwillingness to accept these new ideas. On the other, the cops created the strain that fueled the riot at Compton's cafeteria. The incident began when a transgender woman resisted arrest by throwing coffee at a police officer. It was followed by drag queens and transgender women pouring into the streets, fighting back with their high heels and heavy bags. And this riot actually happened three years before Stonewall in New York City. Not that we're like gatekeeping human rights and who did them first, but like, I don't know, to be noted. Um, yeah, so that's that one block of the TL, a lot of history right there. And like I said, let's keep Aunt Charlie's alive because it really was like such a respite and like oasis in the like craziness that was down there um so after leaving at charlie's the day gets like ooh, a little hazy because like cheap drinks you know but i do know we made it into spec 
Bucks in North Beach. I bought myself ginger ale and promptly lost my debit card, so rip. Um, Specs 12 Adler Museum Cafe, otherwise known as Specs, was opened in 1968 by Richard Specs Simons of Roxbury, Boston. So we have some East Coast origins here. But prior to Specs, Richard, Richard Specs Simmons, buying it, so who's, I guess his nickname was Specs, so he named the bar after himself. So prior to Specs owning it, the building held two lesbian bars called 12 Adler and Tommy's Place owned by Tommy Vasu, the first lesbian to own and operate a bar in San Francisco. Tommy socialized with gangsters. She enjoyed gambling. She used the men's bathroom. She played liar's dice with Walter Keene, which, side note, I didn't know who Walter Keene was, so I looked him up. He was the guy who plagiarized all of his wife's work and passed it off like as his own. The movie Big Eyes with Amy Adams is like that whole story. So that's who that is. Um, anyway, Tommy was known for her style. She had short hair, drove a Cadillac convertible, and wore expensive double-breasted suits with a fedora. So I think you can picture it. As described by Pat Bond, who was a lesbian activist and community historian, quote, she made a lot of money and would go with hookers a lot, and she would buy them for coats and John Frederick hats. Frederick hats. Anything you wanted, Tommy could get for you. You wanted a watch, she'd bring out 40 watches. She liked being a gangster, like Frank Sinatra, and that kind of thing. She was in drag from time, from the time she was 12, all her life. End quote. So Tommy owned and operated 12 Adler, as well as the adjoined bar, Tommy's Place, starting in the 40s. And in 1954, it was actually the site of a police raid during the era of the Lavender Scare. And the Lavender Scare, you might be wondering, was a moral panic during the mid-20th century about homosexual people in the U.S. government and their mass dismissal from government service. So, like, everyone was getting fired for being gay. It contributed to and paralleled the anti-communist campaign known as McCarthyism and the Second Red Scare. Gay men and lesbians were said to be a national security risk and communist sympathizers, which led to the call to remove them from state employment. It's thought that gay people were more susceptible to being manipulated, which would pose a threat to the country. Just like, God damn it. That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. I hate that. <sighs> the life... The life out there. Okay. So what about the police raid? Tommy actually owned another bar before Tommy's place in 12 Adler. So like, I don't know her exact reasons. When she opened these new places, she had her girlfriend's names on the liquor licenses and as the actual owners. Um, Vasu was rumored to be involved in prostitution and possibly worked as a pimp. So I guess this might have been one of those like only commit one crime at a time things. So... SF police arrived bearing warrants for the two for two of the bar owners, like two of the girlfriends, and they were charged with contributing to the delinquency of minors by serving them alcohol. The police conducted a search of the premises and claimed to find a heroin kit hidden in the restroom at 12 Adler. The girlfriends, Miller and Van Devere, were arrested, and the next day, the San Francisco newspapers printed photos of the two being charged along with their home addresses, which, like, I feel like would definitely be illegal now because that's so, like, that's a massive doxing thing. Um, 
That's yeah, absolutely nuts. The raid ended up becoming part of like an increasingly, increasingly aggressive campaign by the police, city, and state governments against the gay bars and gay people. Um, and it would kind of set the stage for modern day LGBTQ rights movements in the late 60s. So, and it turns out, five months before the raid, in March of 54, two teen girls aged 14 and 16 were found in a hate street room suffering from, quote, narcotic poisoning, according to the Chronicle. Their parents reported their daughter's drug use to the police, who launched a lengthy investigation that involved interviewing a dozen other teen girls. The drugs were traced back to Tommy's place and a Jesse Winston, who was a 51-year-old black man who was arrested for dealing on September 1st, 1954. And a week after that, that's when the raid on Tommy's place happened. There was actually, and I guess knowing the history of how like marginalized folks have been treated and are still treated in society, um, there was like a dedicated attack in mission to bring down gay and lesbian bars in SF. And a lot of it was brought on by the U.S. military, if you can believe that. Um, But that's a story for another episode as well. Back to Tommy's. That five-month investigation really dug up some dirt on the ladies who ran the bars, including that a bunch of underage girls at Tommy's place um, would buy Benzedrine which they called Bennies, which I think now are referred to as Benzos, um, as well as marijuana marijuana cigarettes and alcoholic drinks. One girl told the police that at closing time, someone, quote, either a man or a mannish woman, would invite them to an after party at Jess and Winston's flat on Kearney and Telegraph Hill. Um, Jesse Winston, again, was the one who the two girls who OD'd got their drugs from. Uh, honestly, like this article is pretty, like the quotes from the article are pretty gnarly and like pretty much describes like a straight up sex trafficking ring and how these girls were groomed by Jesse into developing drug habits and then exploited by some of the older women and men who hung around. But of course the threat of homosexuality and gender nonconformity is what like hooked the public. The fact that minors were being sex trafficked was like secondary to they might be gay or they might be cross-dressing. Like they didn't really care about the sex trafficking. They just didn't want, you know, they just wanted to other people for being gay. So back to the present. Spex is under new non-sex trafficking ownership and it's super fun. It's right across the street from City Lights Bookstore in kind of an alley. Highly recommend. Uh, we finished the night with a dinner that I don't really remember at Firenze. I don't know how to pronounce Florence in Italian. Firenze. Firenze. Um, God damn it. Whatever that word is by night, a few blocks up from Specs. I got mushroom risotto. I remember that much. I don't like mushrooms. I don't know why I ordered it. Uh, but yeah, that was the day. On the mini tour of some historic spots in SF. It was such a fun day. And I really am stoked to explore more like old historic spots in the city. If you have any suggestions, let me know. If you want to come to an old bar with me, let me know. It's a lot of fun. And for the third time now, let's go to Aunt Charlie's. Let's make sure the last remaining gay bar in the TL doesn't close. Um, That's the least we can do, right? 
Um, in other news, I got tickets to that Portola Music Festival, which I'm pretty stoked about. I figure, like, I'm not going to Outside Lands, but I guess I'll go to this thing. Um, I really like the lineup, so should be fun. Um, if anyone else is going in that, come with me, or I'll go with you. Whatever. It'll be fun. There's a new show on Hulu that I've just already watched twice since it came out yesterday. It's like a mini series of six episodes. I don't know what that says about me that I've already watched it twice over, but it's called Pistols. And it's about, maybe it's just Pistol. I don't know. Not probably Pistols. It's about the Sex Pistols, and it's like a drama miniseries. I really liked it. It doesn't focus on Sid Vicious so much into the last like two episodes, which I find really refreshing because I feel like he overshadows the band's accomplishments before he even showed up. Um, like I think he only even played in one song, and then Steve Jones had to like dub over it. So I'm happy that it doesn't focus around him because like the band did so much before he even showed up. Um, yeah, anyway, it's on Hulu. Another recommendation for you. Also recommendation. I did zone out and spent a bit of time on the Monterey Bay Aquarium's YouTube channel. And they have all these videos of like ambient music with pictures of ocean life just like floating by. So there's like a sick one with squids just like squidding around. There's one with like deep sea creatures and it's like hours of it. Like I think, let me see, it's like two hours of squids, you know, I don't know what they do. What would you call the movement of a squid? It's not floating because they like, they're, they're moving in a direction, you know, they're like actively like, uh, wow, I'm going to have to look that up. Stay tuned because what, what do you call a squid when it moves? Like it's not swimming. Is it swimming? Can you swim without fins or arms or movement like that? Is it floating? What is it called, like, what an octopus does when it just, like, propels? Do squids propel? I'm getting sidetracked. Okay. Well, that's today's episode. Thank you so much. I feel like I talk way too fast. I'm going to work on that. I'm going to work on making these episodes better. Um, Can't promise that, but we're going to try. Uh, Anyway, thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. I will see you next Friday. Consistency. We love it. All right. Love you. And goodbye.